from the EAH team, welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, president of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Well, Alicia, we are back after an action-packed 2023. My God, it was an exhausting 2023. Did you manage any time off over Christmas? Um, And did you manage to avoid Davos, or were you dragged into that as well? I did get some time off, definitely, but uh, I had a lot going on at the same time. So it was, I wouldn't say so restful. (laughs) I definitely could use a couple more weeks. I didn't make it to Davos, but I did have plans and and actually I have a a very good friend with a cabin there. So I was one of the few fortunate people that would have had at least a bunk bed available um, if I wanted to go last minute. But actually Davos was extremely focused on AI and I was invited to just just a huge number of events around AI, but not very much uh, related to climate. So I just decided that I think, you know, COP is just the better fit. For, for me and, and for, you know, the industry that we're in and for decarbonization, because Davos is not, that's just not their singular focus, right? I mean, they have many different things that they look at. Uh, and AI, I guess I'll get interested when they stop saying it every other word. Um, <laughs> but- well, I mean, I have to say, if, 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 as, an, if as a negotiating tactic, um, Elon Musk's approach to AI actually starts to work, i.e. you say... Well, you know, I don't own enough of my company to invest in AI because I don't trust that some future buyer is not going to do something reckless and dangerous with it to give me more shares. If that tactic starts to work, maybe more CEOs will start saying (laughs) AI, add AI into everything. (laughs) um, Wow. I mean, I only loosely just. There's a lot going on already. Um, I'll be in Saudi next week, and then they have Hivolution in, in France. Uh, so it's uh, there's there's a lot going on. I've been uh, organizing a, a finance day for Hivolution, so that should be really interesting. Because as you know, I've been talking a lot about the different kind of finance, but now we're going to have the real practitioners out there talking about um, all these different uh, tools and, and ways that we can get um, these projects across the line. Uh, and get moving. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, we've we had the HAR1 results in the UK. So this is the, the international list is the UK's hydrogen allocation round one, which was our first CFD mechanism. So that was announced. Uh, and we got HAR2, which is April 17th for submissions. But you have to do a, an EOI before. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a nice Christmas present from um, government um, because they actually gave everyone Christmas before they set any of the deadlines, which is nice because normally what they like doing in the UK is they like waiting until the summer holidays starts. And just as they start, they then set all of the competitions off and deadline them for when they come back. So the civil servants get a really nice holiday break and everyone else busts the gut. <laughs> That's the worst. The only thing worse than that is the US where no one expects to take vacation ever. <laughs> but yeah, no, so it's been a busy start to the year. Um, 
the one exciting thing that, well, one of the, one of the many things that we're very excited about this year is that Britain's going to have its second electrolyzer commission this year. So we've got our uh, our second baby Pioneer Two, which is uh, we're due to get the box. Um, so um, kindly supplied by our friends at Nell, arriving I think August or September, and then commissioned in October. So that will be quite fun. So we'll have two electrolyzers producing hydrogen in the UK. So um, that's kind of our one of the Christmas presents from the end of last year to, to have that done and hopefully even some trucks imminently through our uh, our winning um, UK government competition, Hyvel, which is a hydro mobility grant thing. So, ah, super congratulations. Yeah, so it was some nice Christmas presents to wrap up the year with and uh, quite a lot of work now for the Proteum team to to reel it all in, I guess, for uh, this year. So um, that's, the, that's the plan. Speaking of US... Um, should we talk about our guest? Yes, uh, that's quite a good idea. I, I forgot that's what we do here. <laughs> Could you tell us a little, little bit about them? So uh, this week we have uh, Kareem Afsal. Um, Kareem is the executive chairman of PDC Machines. Um, PDC Machines is a diaphragm compressor manufacturer and provides a variety of other hydrogen compression, refueling and dispensing products in the UK, Europe and Asia. Um, PDC machines have been actually around for quite a while. You've probably seen them, or most of our listeners may have seen them in a number of photos. Uh, if you're in the US, you would have seen them. They uh, provided some of the refueling outside Washington, D.C. for politicians and people to come and see. Um, but they've also done a lot of the compression for um, the larger HGV refueling stations in the UK and Europe and in China. So they've been around and they've been working on some quite interesting stuff. I know uh, sometimes our listeners think that we go too into the weeds here on everything about hydrogen, but um, we've only done one other episode on compression with uh, Maria Fennes from Hyatt on electrochemical compression back in, I think, 2021. And actually now we're getting to real projects and real FID and people building stuff, actually looking at the guts and the bolts that really make these projects work and that are really critical and not just the electrolyzer, but all the stuff that goes around it, uh, we thought was really important. So uh, excited to have Kareem on the show. He was at COP as well. Uh, met him there. Super nice guy. Very thoughtful. Um, you know, it's family's business. So really proud of everything that he's doing there. So he should be a great guest. Well, I'm delighted to have on the show Kareem Afzal, who is the executive chairman of PDC Machines. Kareem, thank you very much for coming on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. As a as a good starter for ten, um, obviously in the hydrogen world we know about PDC, or at least protein we know about PDC. But uh, if you just maybe help our listeners out, what PDC machines do? Actually, what does even PDC stand for? You know, maybe talk us a little bit about the company and a little bit about the history. Really, a pleasure to be here, uh, Chris. Thank you so much. And yeah, so PDC machines has to go back to a forty five year history of my father. So he was an immigrant from India who came to the U.S. on a scholarship, go to Princeton University for his master's. He met my mother, who was an au pair from Sweden. Uh, they met at a YMCA and didn't go back. So he started his business in his garage in suburban Philadelphia as a consulting business. So PDC stands for Pressure Dynamic Consultants, which today doesn't mean anything because now we are the world's leading hydrogen diaphragm compressor company employing high-purity, high-pressure gas compressors in markets on six continents, primarily for the mobility space, but also in the power-to-gas sector, mobile pipelines, special chemical and industrial gas sector as well. And that's, uh, that's what we do. And that is what PDC stands for. 
Fantastic. Maybe you could also just give us a little bit of background about how you got to PDC. I, I know it's named after your father, but when did you get involved? When did you really get uh, interested in, in hydrogen? What was your sort of career trajectory? Yeah, so uh, I mean, from you know, basically a, a child, I was uh, very mechanically inclined, and I liked to put things together, take them apart, and see how they work. And from a very early stage, I worked summers putting together compressors, running CNC machines, which made parts for our compressors. And I knew basically from when I was twelve years old that I wanted to come and support. Uh, the family business and uh, make compressors for for people in the industry. So after I graduated college in 1997, I went to Boston University, got my mechanical engineering degree. I came to PDC. I started on the floor right out of college, like everybody did uh, back then. So I put together compressors. And then after one year, I started as a junior engineer. So a junior project engineer, uh, engineering projects for all parts of the globe. And it was in and around that time that the early stages of the hydrogen mobility market, some of the very first projects, PDC made compression for Sunline Transit. One of my early projects was a home fueling system for Honda, where we made a really small compressor, really oddly configured that would fit into this fiberglass existing shell that Honda had and this, uh, the first system got installed uh, outside of their Torrance R&D facility and sort of took it from there and have witnessed lots of twists and turns, booms and, and some busts uh, in the hydrogen industry. But PDC has been one of the stalwarts that has uh, endured uh, through lots of the demonstration uh, phases and also what we're experiencing now, which is the early commercialization. It's incredibly exciting. And it's um, it's really cool to get a little bit of that personal history and that story behind it. We, we've got a million and one questions, but just while I think Alicia is also processing all of that, or she comes in, maybe just something else I might ask you, did, at what point did you sort of think, okay, this is more than a fad? Because, you know, you had that long history with working in, as you say, compression, you know, you'd seen your father go through it. You know, you talked about that early stage of hydrogen. What was the bit that made you go, yes, this really, this makes sense, this is going to work? Uh, the early stage material handling sector. So we made compressors. And at the time, you, you'll hear Andy Marsh talk about sort of plug, plug power story in creating market from almost nothing. And in the early days, uh, the gas supply contracts were not with Plug Power. They were with others in the industry. And our compressors were the compressors of choice and some of that early market activity that was in the material handling sector. Certainly understanding that hydrogen fuel cells really work well in cold environments. So where fuel cells are replacing lead-acid batteries in early market cold storage, you would get a shift's worth of charge, if you will, out of a fuel. We thought that uh, this could be a thing in the long term. Uh, and certainly understanding that as the early bus trials got going, so certainly Sunline Transit's in a nice and warm, sunny area, uh, but some of the other early bus trials that PDC was involved with, the Q Project in Madrid, Stockholm, some of the bus opportunities in Japan and China, hydrogen when fueling big, heavy things that have to drive longer distances than an EV and that need quick refueling, we had a hunch that this could be one of the solutions, one of the pathways to a decarbonized mobility sector. So we, we made it our mission to follow these projects around the world, 
chase the early demonstration phases and make kind of small bets. Not a betting family, not a betting person, but uh, you, you, you make these kind of strategic plays in these various markets on, on a hunch that it will, it, it'll succeed. And it, it's been a good, a good run. Congratulations on the strategy. It would be interesting, I think, for listeners to understand uh, why compression is important and, and, and what are the major considerations that, that people neglect? Yeah, so uh, compression is certainly important from a mobility standpoint because hydrogen is a very light gas. And in order to come close to replicating a current experience in moving people and things around an economy, you have to compress the gas into a small volume to higher pressures to replicate the current user experience, whether that's material handling, whether you want to get a shift, whether it's in light duty vehicles where you want to replicate a current driver experience. So it's the only current driver experience uh, and we could debate how stations are working, but it's it's a uh, you could drive three to four hundred miles, six hundred kilometers, fuel in three to five minutes, and have zero emission. And it's the only fuel that can truly do that today. And, and you can move heavy things. So the second thing about that pumping to high pressures to replicate that current experience, and, and by the way, for the heavy duty sector, that's why hundred kilograms of compressed storage on a truck is very important because you can. You could get that long range that everybody is the holy grail for heavy-duty trucking. And in compression, high purity is very important because fuel cells can't tolerate impurities. So our style of compression is diaphragm compression. It's uh, the purity of the gas coming into the machine is the same as coming out of the machine. In hydrogen fuel cell applications, you need what we call 4.9 purity. So the SAE grade of quality that's required for mobility applications is 99.995% purity. So it can have no water content. Two point has to be very low. We say bone dry and no moisture, no liquids, and also no added other, other gas purities. And diaphragm compression is one of the only styles of compression that can do that. And maybe just to kind of pull a little bit more out from that, though, I mean, it, why is it that, you know, compression is an important part, though, of the overall hygiene story, right? Because by CapEx, um, you know, yes, they are important pieces of equipment, but in the context of a project, they're generally quite small in the grand context of things. But, you know, I, I would sort of be interested, I think many of our listeners would be kind of interested to see why is it that um, this is something that people should pay more attention to, right? If you ever... You know, I'm not saying you did, but many people might have read some of the old um, European reports. FCHJU put out a whole series of reports on hydrogen projects they'd funded for grants in 2016, 2017. Compression failure was the number one issue by far. For all the projects that they did, it was compression failure. I, I was wondering maybe if you could speak a little bit to what PDC Machines does to sort of address those particular concerns, why what you offer is different to other compression products a little bit. And I guess that leads to growth. And sort of, you know, that was obviously one of our questions today. Where are you seeing growth for your products? And it would be good if you could just speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So compression is the, uh, our, our main focus is mobility markets. And I would say tube trailer filling stations and these types of things. And compression is the number one source of mechanical moving parts, right? So electrolysis, production end, dispenser end. Dispenser end, you have chillers, which are very well known and understood. High pressure hydrogen compression, 
I would stay as still working on the cutting edge of technology, right? Whether it's diaphragm compression, whether it's reciprocating piston compression. And as with all moving parts and uh, compression devices, they require maintenance, right? So I can't necessarily speak to some of the early studies. I, I certainly understand that compression, uh, you, you could say failures, were early on number one points of uh, challenges in hydrogen refueling stations. I think recent NRO reports that have studied U.S. installations have shifted that to dispenser challenges, uh, whether that's a chilling failure, whether that's freeze lock of a nozzle. So you, you could sort of say the mechanical challenges have, have evened out over various pieces of the of the value chain in a hydrogen installation. From a PDC perspective, we, we sell and put our product into the market in a variety of different ways. So one way we do it is we sell bare machines and we do training of our staff, uh, of, of the partner staff, in how to integrate and package our product into their overall system. In the European Union, we do that as a way to have our core technology as part of the product, but to have local content and also enhance localization of the product in the European Union. We do the same thing in China and various parts of Asia because for to meet their local codes and standards, some of those, this is the best way for us to meet the standards of the market. I would say that ways that we approach reducing, I would say, number one, failures, number two, enhancing performance. The number one way that we do that is by operator training and partner training. I would say in the early market, it was very common where you would have a lack of training, you would have staff turnover, new people would come in who were necessarily trained uh, fully in comprehensive, whether it's compressors, whether it's various other parts of the system. I often call it the hydrogen village in, in a sense that it's still a very small market with a very small set of people who have, I would say, a career's worth of experience in whether it's compressors or dispensers or uh, pipelines and safety and codes and standards. And we need to grow that. On our side, we have to grow that in the field. The people who are the first responders, so to speak, um, for dealing with failures or dealing with site issues, we have to improve their general understanding of some of the nuanced failures that, that happen in the field. I would say in the early going and even from, from our side, the way that stations ended up operating, I think, was certainly different than originally spec'd out, right? So you had pieces of industrial equipment that were going into hydrogen fueling stations that were operating extremely different than a piece of industrial equipment. And, you know, the amounts of start and stops of a system are very different than in a place that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, say a, a compressor being in a petrochemical industry, you have an army of engineers, an army of service people who are always there and very adept at dealing with challenges in the field. So that's a little bit, we're always working on continuous improvement and innovation as a way to ensure that our product works like you're one step removed from a consumer, right? So a, a consumer's mentality is that a machine or a filling station has to work like a gasoline pump, like a microwave oven. I, I use a microwave oven very frequently because they want to show up, push a button and have it work quite seamlessly. And how we describe it and how I describe it to my R&D teams and our mechanical teams 
is that we need to think what what would a consumer think? What is a consumer experience? And then back into how the machine should work, what kind of data you should have, what kind of connectivity. I'm waving my phone here for those who can't see. You know, uh, connected systems are extremely important to have predictive analytics that could feed into a seamless user experience. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You, you talked a little bit about uh, the innovation that you're working on right now. Could you say a little bit more, uh, like what new products you're designing or, you know, what are the major innovations that you're focused on? Connectivity is one. So uh, we have an app called MyPDCMachines.com app, which provides users connectiveness to their machines so that they could always see the status of their machine. They can understand uh, maintenance records are something that people in the hydrogen mobility universe are not somewhat universally not not very good at so that they could track their maintenance, their parts usage, at what number of hours they did those maintenance events at so that everybody can have a, a, a positive and integrated experience in the use of the machine. Understanding the operating uh, data and parameters is another important thing that PDC has been working on for quite some time. And to feed that into analytics that will give uh, operators and users all of the data they need in the end for troubleshooting, right? So that they can have that troubleshooting a piece of machinery is not a Scooby-Doo mystery. It is something that we can approach with data and uh, predictive analytics to catch things before they happen. The next piece that we're working on is product for the impending wave of heavy-duty vehicles. Uh, and, and I would say, frankly, for that matter, heavy-duty vehicles will come maybe 2027-ish in, in a commercial way. But until then, we have lots of public transportation, lots of bus opportunities, which are commercially viable and ready today, provided that the funding comes. So we're working on technology that can scale quite large, uh, so that instead of 20 buses uh, at a particular site with a single piece of machinery, you could fuel 100 with a single piece of gas compressor at, at the various places that we're doing. So I'd say, uh, and finally, in addition to that, we're always looking to improve our mean time between uh, maintenance events for our compressors, and that's just an ongoing program that we do uh, every day here at PEC. Makes a lot of sense. I think there's a sort of, you know, it's nice also to have someone talking about innovation and focus actually around the core product and just making the whole thing more reliable, more dependable, improving that servicing. I think a lot of people want to talk about the next new shiny thing. So it's quite nice to have someone actually say, we think we've actually got a pretty good core product. How do we make it better and more reliable? So these are good, good buzzwords for companies like mine that are looking to buy kits. Speaking of which, where is actually most of the supply chain located for PDC? Because obviously we have uh, you spoke about the fact that you work with local partners. You spoke about the training program. You spoke about how you, you know, actually operating quite a lot across Asia and Europe, not just the U.S. And then clearly the IRA has quite a big focus on U.S. domestic content. So where do, you know, people always talk about PEM and platinum. Where's that come from and iridium? And so that's always a big supply chain question. Where actually do the components come from for a PDC machine? Where do you, where does it all come together from? Yeah, so for a core product, uh, and our core product is defined as our crankcase, our heads, um, check valves, and different parts. Most of that is uh, locally sourced here in the United States. So we do work with uh, 
people would be surprised to hear this, but our high alloy stainless steel is domestically sourced, uh, and we are quite competitive in, in every market that, that we're deploying to. If we're making a package for the United States, which includes piping valves, fittings, uh, control panels, electric parts, PLCs, uh, we also source those from here. So if it's a North America product or, or Latin America, anywhere in this hemisphere, we are sourcing those products from here. When we are working on a product for the European Union, I would say that 40%, 45% of that product is coming from the European Union. If we package it here, we ship those parts here, we integrate and we send it back. But I would say for most of our overseas markets, European Union and Asia, most of the parts are sourced in the local markets that they're being shipped into. Okay, so that's quite interesting as well. So there's actually, yeah, there is that kind of nice tie across because especially for people looking at a lot of projects right now, local content and how they meet local content is a buzzword for policymakers and for project eligibility, frankly, now for a lot of people. So it's um, it's not always easy for people where their whole product is around having a particularly core piece of technology or equipment that's manufactured in one place under lock and key to to meet all of that. So I think that's quite an interesting aspect of what you guys do. And maybe a final comment from me, and I know Alicia has a question too, as we start to wrap up. Um, have you seen any big disruption impacts from um, sort of supply chain challenges that the broader markets face in the last two years? Or has the model that you've adapted actually meant that BDC is is better able to deal with some of those supply chain challenges? We, we've been able to buffer the supply chain challenges relatively decently. We have a product uh, with a partner, Ivis Energy Solutions, called Simple Fuel. It's an all-in-one package that includes an electrolyzer, compressor, storage, and dispensing in a very compact package. I will say two years ago, uh, listeners can't see this, but my beard is all white now, partly because of the supply chain challenges uh, that we went through in getting power electronics, pressure, just about anything, right? So electronic-wise and semiconductor-wise, it was a nightmare for everyone, and we were not buffered from that. We are seeing that loosen up now uh, where we don't necessarily have uh, those high degree of supply chain challenges. But over the last two years, anything with a chip in it has been difficult. So PLCs up until, I would say, eight months ago were six-month delivery where we used to be able to get them off a shelf, whether it's Allen Bradley or Siemens. It really didn't matter. We would It would be six months. And, you know, when a delivery of a product could be six months in normal conditions, you know, that was that was certainly straining on our customers and I think everybody's ability to deliver. I think with sort of decoupling of supply chains and distribution around the world, I think we're seeing some of that loosen up uh, now, uh, but it's taken a while. It's good to hear though. I guess your company is your baby. So uh, going gray is <laughs> common when you have children and also uh, when you're growing a company. <laughs> Especially when you have teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> but you're not all white, just so the audience knows. You, you've got a nice... <laughs> salt and pepper going on. So um, in terms of some of the other obstacles or just things that you need to focus on and, and to, to solve, are there, there any areas of policy uh, that would make the biggest difference to industry growth in general, but also like from your point of view um, at PDC? That's a great apropos timely question. So I think everybody is aware that the uh, treasury guidelines for the hydrogen production credit came out 
just before the holidays. And it very well matches what the European Union does from a perspective of, a, we call it additionality of uh, new renewable resources for every megawatts worth of hydrogen production, as well as time matching. And uh, I spent actually last week, all of Thursday on, on Capitol Hill, talking to congressional representatives for the folks that work here. Um, and also Pennsylvania senators who are very instrumental in supporting, providing guidance to the administration, U.S. administration, as they put together this this concept. I would say what's, and, and I say it from a United States perspective, but I think it's true around the world, the hydrogen is in its infancy, somewhat, so to speak. Uh, we're, we're learning how to walk, and we want to learn how to run. Policy as we learn to walk, needs to be as least restrictive as possible to allow a phased-in approach. Everybody wants full green molecules. We don't want hydrogen to be more polluting in the early going than kind of existing sources of hydrogen as we as we put uh, capacity on onto the marketplace. New molecules will help decarbonize things downstream and It'll allow, we need time in order to bring some of the new renewable resources, whether we're pulling from hydro, wind, solar, uh, even pulling curtailment from nuclear power is important, certainly important in the hubs. Um, And as written today, just from a U.S. policy point of view, it even makes some of the hubs business case a little more challenged if, if the guidance doesn't get modified a little bit. So... As, as little restriction as possible for the early phase and allow a phased-in approach to put green molecules on the market, I think will support a thriving hydrogen economy. I think what we've seen is, and I think what everybody has seen is, I don't know if stalling of the market is the right word, but uh, a slowdown of final investment decisions. And, you know, there's plenty of reports out there, Hydrogen Council certainly has put out 10, 5-10% of projects have made it to final investment decisions around the world. And some places are, are worse than that. Some places are a little better than that. But we we want to encourage projects, not not stifle them. That, that is actually a little bugaboo of mine because <laughs> um, the, the projects, uh, hydrogen projects that have been announced, I think the first one was announced in like 2020, major projects. So to expect these to be selling, you know, in 2024 is crazy because you have to have, you know, so much uh, has to be done beforehand. Data has to be collected. The EPA has to approve of everything. You have to do a pre-feed, a feed. You have to paper all of the financing. So I think it's a little misleading, even from an organization that I really support, like Hydrogen Council, to say that there have been so many announcements and so few FIDs because, Honestly, there's no way you can do things overnight. I mean, when you're talking about these big projects, you you it takes quite a while. And even the smaller projects, I mean, you really still have to go through all the hoops. So I think there's, I, 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 only reason I bring it up is because I, I think it's fodder for, for people who are against the industry to say that it is like only based on MOUs. And, and that's not really the case. It's just that it takes time to do a project correctly and the worst thing you would want to have is to do harm, right, <laughs> to the environment. It's like the whole point of this is, is to, to help solve the problems. So um, I, I, 
I try to get people not to say that. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so, I appreciate those. <laughs> I, I would just one thing I would add is that the last 18 months have also challenged projects from an inflationary and interest rate point of view. So it's made financing and getting to final investment decision, not just from a regulatory standpoint, but just a macroeconomic point of view. Everybody has faced the same challenges on inflation and rising material costs. And as projects get close to final investment decision, they're not able to make it uh, because of a 30% cost increase on raw materials and semiconductors and all the things that go into making a project successful. So I I don't want to, I agree with you. Um, There are, you know, permitting challenges, land use rights, Vehicles, I mean, from a mobility standpoint, uh, there, there are uh, a whole host of ecosystem considerations that have to happen, not the least of which are macroeconomic conditions that are just challenging the economy broadly. Uh, and we're seeing that as well. Yeah, absolutely. The market is really tough this year and interest rates, which we never thought about, <laughs> you know, before a wow. year ago, really, we're, we're at negative interest rates for the euro. Yeah, <laughs> free, free money was, uh, yeah. people, people couldn't invest enough in capital projects. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think um, uh, what I was going to say, though, is um, regardless of whether money was or wasn't free and where we are now, what is exciting, though, is to see that um, the company that's been working hard uh, for many years on a product is still thriving and is actually um, positioned well. And uh, despite sometimes policymakers' um, best intentions slowing things down a little bit, uh, still a lot of really positive momentum. So, uh, Kareem, I just wanted to say on behalf of um, everyone at the Everything About Hydrogen Podcast, a big thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time and your contributions and look forward to hearing how it's all going from you in the future. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been great. Well, Alicia, I've got to ask, you were in the interview, you've, you've heard all about the, the kind of technical uh, aspects and the challenges of developing compressors and building them into systems, the, the challenges with, you know, actually building some of those aspects of the systems. What stood out to you? What was interesting? What was unexpected? What was new? Well, I think um, a number of things that he talked about with compressors and how it, it is, you know, one of the only moving parts and, you know, it's quite necessary for these projects. Um, Obviously, when you talk to somebody who's selling hammers, then you're going to learn more about hammers. Um, So it definitely was, I definitely learned more about compression and and its importance. And that that was pretty interesting. And, And just his background, having joined his family company and then turned it into something that is, you know, focused on modern requirements. So I thought that was was really interesting. I mean, one thing that I hear a lot and what he brought up was that a lot of the projects that have not hit FID have basically blamed compression. They've had co- issues with compression and with, and with their compressor partners. And I, I think it was just odd to hear, um, you know, we're, we're in the US. Ira was, I think, a year, last year, the year before last. It hasn't been a long time. And already people are citing sort of Hydrogen Council and all these different entities that collect announcements of projects. And then they say, okay, well, these projects were announced last year and only 10% of them have hit FID. What's going on? What's wrong? Like, how how could we have this happen? And I find it a bit frustrating because, I mean, if you just think about it, if you're trying to do an integrated project with renewables on the upstream 
or even if you're trying to do, you know, using natural gas and, and carbon capture, like the fact is that it takes a long time to collect data, get permitting for lots of different things, and also to do your own analysis, to do what's required to have bankable financing for the FID. And that doesn't, that's not all about permitting. That's also offtakes. That's also supply chain. That's, uh, it's just so many things that I feel if, if somebody says to you, well, we're putting up this project, it's, you know, two gigawatts and uh, we just announced it and we've been working on it for three months and, you know, it's going to be up next year. Well, some big alarm bells should go off because just the environmental study alone should take that long. And in this particular industry, obviously, we do not want to hurt the environment. And I think that that people really have some outsized expectations for how quickly you could actually get to FID on these integrated projects in particular. Now, perhaps you could get to FID faster if it's just the upstream wind and solar. But when you're talking about making hydrogen and also even going downstream more to ammonia or methanol, I mean, that is a lot that needs to be done. Any major project requires the pre-feed, the feed. And in fact, most of this is done by third parties. Otherwise, it's not bankable. So that's hiring, you know, probably 12 or 20 different entities to help you to do all of these steps to get to FID. And I don't see that just disappearing. You can't just take the regulation away because the companies also need to get the bank. The banks need to fund it. And the banks aren't going to be happy if you say, oh, well, I wrote this down myself and here you go. Here's the logs we've kept. No, it it has to almost always be third party. And that's going to be uh, a lengthier process. So I just think that people have very, really just unrealistic expectations for hitting FID uh, so quickly. And maybe the reason was compressors and maybe the reason was like 8 billion other things <laughs> that, that, could low, that could slow it down. Well, after that rant, what do you think about it, uh, Patrick? I mean, the 8 billion things can include uh, specific items like compressors. And certainly we've seen challenges in supply chain over the last number of years and you know, that no doubt is a challenge, but also, you know, just to, to hit the, the regulatory challenge point here as well, like very simply, some level of market uncertainty still exists. And, and obviously we have more guidance coming out now. We certainly have guidance, obviously, for the, you know, um, on the European side, for instance, in the markets. You know, I, I think one thing to, to, to note is that any project that's looking to export to the European Union particularly was was looking at that guidance around the carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism and saying okay well this is this is the quality standard I have to meet and similarly you know obviously we've got guidance now on or provisional guidance on on 45v we've got guidance on other aspects as well 45q for those who are using the the blue mechanism we've got a little bit more certainty and some of that just directly will feed into the the need for these producers to meet you know the, the highest bar standards so alignment on regulation regulation is going to help them with banking their projects precisely when you have to go talk to your financiers you've got a pathway to to probably show that you're eligible for the tax credit and that eligibility for the tax credit is probably good for helping you be able to sell your product quality and that uncertainty over the last year has been a real pain point both on the producer side and the consumer side because frankly if you are a consumer who wants to decarbonize you want to make sure you're getting a decarbonized product and um, that's one of the 
questions of uncertainty that we've heard again and again and again. So we're, we're moving forward here. But, you know, to your point, I think more broadly, there is a lot that goes into building projects and there's a lot that goes into planning and permitting around that. There's a lot that goes into the regulation, all of which address concerns and constraints in the market. So let's see what's next because we're not we're not in clear view of everything in the final versions, but there's more to come. And I think this is just a stage, you know, which we all knew we were going to get to in terms of the market itself maturing, the standards, the structures kind of coming into place. I think maybe yeah. the, the other part of this that might be just interesting on the compressor side, but just very quickly is, you know, we, we ov- obviously hear a lot about this as a specific component. It's so critical within m- many of these systems. It's so critical for storage and, you know, thinking of, you know, moving if we if we go down the route of like large scale pipelines, compression becomes so critical in that. So, you know, it is it is a, a fundamental challenge in ensuring that we have the availability of the, the right equipment that will I think particularly be so vital in the next stage when we stop talking about islanded projects and we talk about an infrastructure system, which is obviously an area that that I work a lot on, but it is something that we start need to certainly get smarter on and we also need to start to think about properly. Sorry, go ahead, Alicia, you were going to say. Oh, no, I I mean, I I agree. and And I think we obviously want to get to where we're trading this globally. And, you know, some of the work on the the methodologies to calculate emissions intensity is going to be very necessary for certification. But to your point, if you're selling to Europe, well, Europe is going to require additionality and temporal matching as well. So it really, you know, it's almost either neither here nor there for a lot of um, companies in the United States, what the United States regulation is, because they are actually going to have to sell into Europe and it's Europe's regulations that are going to bind them to do this in that manner. So I think it is, you know, it's, it's only helpful the U.S. would align with Europe because that, that's really going to make it a lot easier for these producers to actually have a product with an offtake. And uh, obviously we're, we're going to have mutual recognition of different systems around the world. But if we're agreeing on a lot of the same methodologies in order to determine this emissions intensity. And there are going to be a number of other items that different countries require, you know, whether you know they won't allow slave labor or they won't allow forced labor, you know, or or prison labor. Like there's a number of different things on the ESG side besides the environment that a number of countries are going to require. And so the the, the more that the the builder or the developer knows in the in the at the outset of what's going to be necessary the easier it is for them to do the projections to see what's feasible and to see what else that they require in order to make this a bankable project. Um, so I think it can only be helpful that we would be as aligned as possible really globally, but especially in the United States, that when they're, they're certainly targeting Europe, I mean, I just can't imagine why you wouldn't want to do what Europe is requiring. <laughs> that seems like a, a, a kind of a no-brainer. But um, I think, uh, you know, sometimes people just really just just want to be left alone. But I'm not sure that's the best mix for a, a, a nascent industry. And I certainly find that those same people that want to be left alone from regulations don't mind subsidies or other things to make their life easier. So, you know, I, I guess you, we still need regulation. I, I still need I still think you can have regulation. It doesn't have to be onerous. It doesn't have to be 
overly bureaucratic. You can do it in, in the simplest ways possible. And you obviously want to avoid any unintended consequences or, or different moral hazards that can be created. But uh, that said, you know, we're going to have regulation. And that's, that's just, that's life. That's life if you want a government, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, on that note, I think I, I, I sort of agree that the compressors are a necessity no one really thinks so much about. But I would also say the regulations are, are similar. It's an absolute necessity for clarity for investors and for people to actually reach FID and, and feel themselves that, that their projects are feasible. Yeah, and maybe to jump in on the, the kind of more, perhaps it's uh, almost looking at the technical side of it a little bit, but like, you know, when we think of fueling stations very straightforwardly, there's a challenge in getting those high volumes of dispersed hydrogen out. Like we routinely hear about challenges at fueling stations and people having to wait and whatnot. And, you know, advancements in compressor technology, advancements in the design of those fueling stations, really critical. Also, you know, like managing how how dispersal of the hydrogen at those stations is, is you know, lined up has been a, you know, a huge level effort between the, the kind of component manufacturers on the actual you know, nozzle side as much as it is on the, the car side. And very simply, when I, when I say that, what, I, what I'm trying to reflect is that these are far more complicated things that we have largely taken for granted um, because of similarity of system. And there are, you know, significant, you know, bodies of work and efforts to innovate and improve these things. And, you know, when we talk about storage and, 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 and kind of pipelines and things like that, compressors play a critical and central role. So innovation in this space and continued work in this space is going to be fundamental, um, especially if we want to talk about a large volume market, if we want to talk about a, a traded commodity market in the in the truest sense of the word. Certainly one for, for you know folks listening in to just keep their eyes open to and maybe uh, listen out when you hear folks talking about these maybe uh, from a perspective standpoint, secondary systems that um, changes within these and innovations and efforts to improve those have material consequences for both projects and also for the kind of design of market that we're going to see come forward. So um, maybe in a funny, perhaps even unexpected way, it is a little bit of watch this space and see how it evolves and develops. <laughs> watch this space. I mean, if we had a couple of Easter eggs in this episode, then, then we would really be in our, our top form. Um, but, uh, but definitely, I think we can end on Watch This Space. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com. Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.